This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon Church, again, it is good for us to be together as we get into God's word together and as we uh, figure out what it means for us to really love each other, to care for each other, to really see each other. And as we talk about that idea of seeing, uh, our passage today takes us into some pretty deep areas uh, as to how do we understand what we see? How do we know what we're looking at? How do we know that we really see the way we think that we are in, in the mid-90s, there was a book that was written by a quantum physicist uh, named Arthur Zients, and he uh, wrote a lot about, the li- about light and the mind, how we see, and then how we make sense of what we see. <clears throat> it was a book called Catching the Light, The Entwined History of Light and Mind. And he just explored the relationship between light and seeing. And here's what I mean. We know that early in life, there are these critical developmental windows wherein our eyes begin to form, our senses begin to form, our motor skills begin to form. And if that early opportunity of development is lost, trying to play catch up is almost impossible. It can be really hard if you might have senses that form, but maybe there aren't motor skills uh, necessary, or motor skills that are in place so that you can kind of make sense of what it is that you're seeing or hearing or tasting or touching. And so you, you could have folks who might even be born without the ability to see. Uh, there are cases of people that have congenital blindness. And in those cases, um, this, this particular book talks about a study that had been done on folks who had had congenital blindness in the early 1900s. And they talk about a young eight-year-old boy who had had horrific cataracts. He was born with cataracts on his eyes. He could not see. And they had done a corneal transplant. And so they replaced his cornea, and he began to physically be able to receive light into his eyes. So you've got this eight-year-old boy, been blind from the time that he was born, and now his eyes are healed. They removed the bandages, and they would wave a hand in front of his physically perfect eyes. They would ask him what he saw, and he would respond, I don't know. I don't know what I'm seeing. All he knew was that he could see varying brightness in front of him. He just saw different shades of brightness, but he wasn't sure what it was that he was actually looking at. Then they allowed the boy to touch the hand as it waved in front of his hand. And he stopped and he would cry in this triumphant, uh, triumphant voice, kind of saying, I, it's moving. I could feel it move, right? Because he saw, but with the motor skills that he had, he could actually test and touch and make sense of what it was that he was seeing because he didn't know what it was that he was looking at. In other words, he could see, but he had to learn to see movement. He had to learn to make sense of what it was that was coming in to his eyes. A deeper way of thinking about it is this way. Light and eyes were not enough to grant him sight. Just having the, the, the machinery in place and even having the power to see didn't guarantee that he would actually see. And that's actually what the surgeons in that, uh, in that case said. They said that they gave the patient the power to see. And then they said this, the employment of this power, which as a whole constitutes the act of seeing, 
still has to be acquired from the beginning. To give back sight to a congenitally blind person is more the work of an educator than that of a surgeon. He reminds us the sober truth remains that vision requires far more than a functioning physical organ. And here's the key thing he says here. Without an inner light, without a formative visual imagination, we are blind. Now, I don't know that these scientists were believers. I don't know that they uh, knew that they were given us stuff that would preach all day and twice on Sunday. But when you really consider the idea that you can have a physically functioning organ and still not see, this is not only physiologically true, Jesus shows us that this is spiritually true. All of us have massive blind spots. All of us truly outside of something else happening, we don't truly see God. And therefore, we don't fully see each other. We are living in a yet another tragic moment that bears out this truth today. This past week, this video that we all have heard about or seen was uh, released showing uh, the February 23rd brutal murder of a young African-American man uh, uh, who was jogging through a neighborhood in Brunswick, Georgia, a man named Ahmad Arbery. And, and uh, we have uh, heard, some folks had heard about this case before the video was released. And before that video was released, many folks, especially people who are not people of color, um, didn't know how to see this story. Didn't know uh, what they should even be looking for in this story. Now, the facts of the incident were widely available. The incident report, was online, uh, but there were, there, there were still several people who maybe saw this as a warranted citizen's arrest in which homicide would have been avoided had Ahmad just complied. Others felt that he must have instigated contact and therefore brought it on himself because of Gregory and Travis McMichael's right to defend themselves. In any event, outside of many black communities, few people were calling for their arrests or calling for the DA's resignation and disbarment because of her insistence that these men not be arrested. When the video was released, people finally began to call for the arrest uh, two and a half months later. But why? Did, did people finally see things that were actually really wrong? Did people finally begin to, to, to see things the way that other folks have been saying is things that people have been saying is true for, for, for centuries? Many communities of color have lived out this reality countless times. They had no problem seeing what needed to be seen uh, before the video was shown. And let me remind you that they have little hope over whether or not this, folk, this, this video will uh, make folks finally see that there exists a large problem of white supremacy and its effect on uh, the justice system or the lack of justice for people of color. There have been videos of black and brown people being brutalized and murdered uh, by, by police and by citizens alike. There have also been arrests, yet no real justice is served in several of these cases. And people can see these events. They can see these things laid out, played out on camera, and still never see. They can relegate these cases to isolated situations where there are, there are bad apples instead of seeing something deeper, instead of seeing that the water 
with which these apples have been hydrated and grown is poison. Some apples manifest this poison uh, in very demonstrated ways and others they lie dormant. Now that's just one example, right, of, of a deep sin issue that only certain people see and others just refuse to see or are unable to see. This is the case with every kind of sin with which we battle because that's the very makeup of our sin nature. And Jesus shows us the, this very truth in our text today. Jesus shows us this very truth that, that not only uh, individual sins, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's misogyny, whether it's lust, whether it's drunkenness, there are lots of different ways that our sin nature manifests itself. But we are completely enslaved to it because we don't see it. We're enslaved to it because we refuse to see it or we are unable to see it. This is where we find ourselves in, where, in what Jesus is saying in John chapter 9. And as, as you think about John chapter 9, we've walked through John now for the last few months. And when you consider what has already occurred, Jesus has already walked through. Uh, he's been uh, doing some incredible things in Jerusalem. He's starting to make a lot of the religious leaders very upset. <clears throat> They're starting to feel very threatened. They're starting to see their power be threatened. They're starting to really question who Jesus is and what authority does he have to say and do the things that he says and does. And now we come to this story of Jesus healing this man that was born blind. And we've seen uh, this, this miracle. If you know this story, this miracle occurs on the Sabbath. And again, the Pharisees are looking for ways to identify Jesus as a rebel to identify Jesus as a demoniac, to identify Jesus as ungodly. And so they see that he is healing on the Sabbath. And that caused this incredible division among the Pharisees. The first, you know, 15 or 16 verses, you're seeing the folks who are looking for reasons. They see Jesus do this amazing thing or they hear about Jesus doing this amazing thing. And this man is completely blind, has been blind from birth. And Jesus uh, takes spit and dirt and creates this mud and rubs it on the eyes of this man and, this, and tells this man to go wash in the pool of uh, Siloam. And he goes there and, he, and immediately he begins to have his sight restored. You look at verse 16. Some said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And then other people were arguing, saying, well, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? You see, you had the majority of the folks that were there, they were contending that Jesus wasn't from God, right? The way they saw things, the ways that they thought they knew, the things that they trusted in in order to make sense of the world around them told them Jesus could not be God. And in a few months, those people would succeed in crucifying him. See, they couldn't refute the reasoning of the blind man. They go to the blind man and they're asking him, okay, wait a minute, who did this? How did this happen? Tell us the truth. How in the world did this happen? How were you able to, to see right now? We've watched you be blind all this time. Folks who had seen him as a beggar before. He was blind. He probably couldn't do anything else. He wasn't useful to do anything else. So he was a beggar. And the, neighbor, the neighbors re remembered him begging. They were saying, isn't this the same guy that used to sit begging? Some said, here's the one. Others said, no, but he looks like him. And then he kept saying, no, it's me. It's me. And these Pharisees, they come uh, up to him and, and, and they, they're trying to figure out how, H how did this happen? And uh, you would hear some of the, some of the Pharisees again responding going, well, however it happened, it can't be because that man is from God. We know that. 
Because no matter what new evidence presents itself, the way that we see him will not change. It doesn't matter how much you prove otherwise. I am sold out on the way that I think. You know, this is how our sin nature works, right? I have a way that, that I think. There is something that brings me comfort. And so I would much rather hold on to a comfortable falsehood than to actually embrace an uncomfortable truth. I would much rather hold on to something that makes me feel good and be a lie than something that will be disruptive but be the truth. This is what we see happening with these Pharisees. And so some folks are trying to figure out what it is, and they go to this man, and they ask the blind man, in verse 17, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the man said, he's a prophet. Now, the Jews, verse 18, the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and uh, received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. So now they're like, okay, we see that you can see. We can't argue with that. But we are still so stuck on it can't possibly be from that man that we have already deduced is not really of God. So we don't trust you. We're going to talk to your parents. Your testimony doesn't mean anything because it's not what we want to hear. Your testimony doesn't count because it, it is not in accordance with what we have already deemed to be truth. So we're going to talk to your parents. And so they talk to the parents and the parents respond in verse 20. They said, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. We don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22 says his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said he's of age. Ask him. Sometimes in our sin, we feign interest in something, knowing what it is we want to hear back. I often find myself a little frustrated when people will say, and it's a very passive aggressive thing, when people will say, I really just want to understand. Can you help me understand this? I'm just asking. It's an honest question. Anytime you see in social media when people see things coming up or an issue is, is brewing online and people are kind of disagreeing about a thing and somebody makes a point on social media and another person chimes in and goes, okay, honest question here. What I've noticed is that Many times when people have to start with an honest question, there's a dishonest motive. Many times, not every time, but many times when people say, okay, I'm just being honest here. I just want to, just, just an honest question, just an honest question. Usually that's their way of hiding the fact that they are very, being very disingenuous with their motives because if the question were honest, then they would be willing to receive the truth no matter how uncomfortable it is. But that is not the case here. So they do go to the parents to ask a question, but they know the answer they already want to hear. And the parents know the answer that they likely want to hear. So they don't give any more information that would incriminate them. And they just say, here's what we know. Our kid's been blind all his life. He can now see. How it happened, who did it, we can't speak to that. Go ask him. And so he gets to that point, and the second time, they bring the man back in verse 24 who had been blind, and they told him, uh, he, he, they actually told him, okay, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So they almost try to guilt him and manipulate him into taking a lie and making it the truth. Again, this is what often happens when there's truth that we don't want to deal with. We almost try to force people to just submit to a lie and call it the truth. And he said, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. And they asked him, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become the disciples too, do you? I think that was pretty bold of this man to say this because he really is calling out their disingenuity, if you will. 
He can see the fact that these folks, they actually don't want to know the real truth because he realizes if you knew the truth and you really believed what I'm telling you, you would have no choice but to follow him. So he's like, why do you keep asking? Do you, are, are you wanting me to convince you even more so so that you can be a follower of him? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. Again, there's that thing we talked about before, this appealing to their already kind of religious constructions, right? We've got the religion we have constructed for us, and this tells us what is really true. This thing that you're doing right now, even though we, can't, we don't have an explanation for how this is happening, our tradition and our comfortable ways of thinking, those things are good enough for us. You can be Jesus' disciple, but we're Moses. This false uh, dilemma, really, because if they really were of Moses, like Jesus said, then they would have known Jesus. They would have known his father. But they're still uh, holding on to that. And they're like, we, we, we're Moses' disciples. We know what God said to Moses. But this man, we don't know where he's from. The man says, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, this is key, throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're trying to teach us, and they threw him out. This takes us into the main part of the text that I think we need to find ourselves, that we need to really root ourselves in. Because what you notice <clears throat> is that in this story, the Pharisees' MO is the same. They, they, they see something they don't like. They see something that uh, does not coincide with what they believe to be true. Things are not matching up with what they see. And so instead of uh, reckoning with the new information, they go to the message bringer and say, there's got to be something wrong with you. In many ways, they gaslight the entire situation. It can't be that. It's got to be you. This issue, uh, us not understanding why you're healed, it's because there's something you're not telling us. It's because there's something wrong about you that we don't get it. It can't be us. It's got to be you. This takes us into where we see Jesus showing back up into this story. But there are two things that are true here. And I want us to look at this as we look at verses 35 through 41. Two things that are true. First thing, only those who see they are spiritually blind will ever truly see. Only those that see that they're spiritually blind will ever truly see. And the second thing, those who think they can see are enslaved to their spiritual blindness. If you think you can see, you are enslaved to your spiritual blindness. You look at John uh, 9, verses 35 through uh, 41. I'm going to read those in their entirety. And then I want us to look at how these two truths are played out. Both we, we, we never get to see until, we're, until we see that we're blind. And if we think we can see, we are in spiritual blindness and, that, and we become a slave to that. Let's read through uh, 9, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him, in fact. He is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, 
We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Thank, I'm so thankful that God shows us some things about ourselves. If you're new with us, if you're new uh, watching some of our sermons or listening to some of our sermons, we like to remind our, our people that um, we read the scriptures and we really believe that everything that we need for faith and practice and godliness are in God's word. And what that means is that we don't just read the scriptures, but the scriptures indeed read us. The scriptures, God has something to say about who we really are. And he exposes who we really are to the extent that we realize we have no other answer for ourselves outside of him. And this text shows us just who, how blind we are and how necessary it is that we see that we're blind. When you look at verse 35, here it is, this man who is, all he's done is given an honest testimony. All he did was be healed. I think it's interesting, this man, you would think that this man is just completely in jubilation because he's been blind his entire life, and now he can see. And the first thing people want to say to him is either you're lying, you're a sinner, you can't be telling the truth, and we don't believe anything you say about the person who healed you. And they throw him out of the temple. Now that would have been an incredibly shameful time for anyone in Jerusalem. For a Jewish man to not be able to go into the temple, that is shameful. That is, you are persona non grata. And so here he is, this man who is an outcast, simply because of the truth. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a situation where you told the truth, but the truth was so unpopular that you get cast aside, that's where this man is. Outcast for the truth. Jesus goes, and the scripture says, as Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found out, he asked, and when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Y'all, I'm just hung up on this phrase, and when he found him, Think about this for a minute. This man who was blind can now see to a degree, right? He can physically see. We're going to see in a minute. Spiritually, he still needs some more sight correction, right? But physically, he can see. But he's still, uh, there's still a degree of blindness, and he's definitely in a, sp- a place of, of lostness, right? He's, he's, he doesn't have a real uh, rootedness now. He's been kicked out of the temple, so him being able to practice his faith in the, uh, in, in the temple has already been taken away from him. But Jesus goes and he finds him. He finds him. This man doesn't go and find Jesus. Jesus finds him. There's something about this text that should uh, uh, impart this truth to us. When you realize your blindness, you realize that you never find God. He always finds you. When you realize that your blindness actually renders you incapable of finding God. I get it. We say it. I've said it. We'll say this all the time. People may go through a really, really hard time. Maybe they have to go to a place of punishment or go through a place of retribution or they deal with some really heavy consequences. And during that time of paying the price for certain things or dealing with certain consequences, they'll say, and that's when I found God. The truth of the matter is that if we're blind, we don't find anything. He finds us. This man just had his sight restored, still kind of meandering, trying to figure out what life is going to look like, been kicked out of of these places that used to be home for him. And Jesus goes and he finds him. 
And he goes to the man and he says, do you believe in the son of man? In many ways, Jesus is going to the man that has his physical sight restored to still pursue him enough to make sure that his spiritual sight is restored. That's who our God is. He doesn't just care. He cares about our physical needs. And we can go to him and ask him to meet our physical needs. But he never leaves us just with our physical needs being met. He realizes your greatest need is still to have your spiritual sight restored. It does no good trying to look for direction when you do not have sight. Because everything you look to do will be something that will likely be more harmful than it will be advantageous. The only way to see God's best for us is to actually have his vision and not our own. So Jesus responds once he finds him. He says, do you believe in the son of man? Incredible question. A question that we have to always ask ourselves. A question that we have said many times. uh, The two biggest things we have to constantly answer is, who is Jesus? What do we do with his claims? Who is Jesus? And what do we do with his claims? No other question matters more than that. And so he says, do you believe in the son of man? This should harken back to what we see in the gospel of Luke 19.10. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Things that are lost, things that are blind, things that are deaf, they can't heal themselves. If you're lost, you can't find your own way. The only way that you know that you're, uh, the only way that you really find salvation is to know just how lost you are. I'll never forget the time that my mom had taken me to a store and she made the fateful decision of going down the toy aisle. And, you know, I know nowadays most folks don't even go into brick and mortar stores to get toys. We just order them on Amazon. But back in the day, we would go to actual places like toy stores and stores that have toy aisles. And I remember her going there for something. We didn't go there to get a toy, but I immediately made a beeline to the toy aisle. And my mom went with me and then she kept on walking and I stopped following her. I actually stopped seeing her. I, my eyes were fixated on this toy that I was playing with. And so while I was playing with the toy and just in my own world, my mom had just continued to walk, continued to move. And I'll never forget, I had no idea. In the moment, I had no idea I was lost. In that moment, I didn't know. I could not tell you where my mom was at that time. Like she maybe two, three aisles over at that point. I don't know. But at that moment, I had no idea that I was lost. As far as I could see, I was good, right? I was locked in on the toy that I had. I didn't know that I was so far removed from my mom. I didn't know that I was actually out of place and out of position at that point. And it wasn't until I started to look up, and I think somebody had walked by and said, uh, young, young man, is your mom nearby? Is your, are your parents nearby? And that's when I stopped and went, oh my goodness, my parents aren't nearby. My mom is not nearby. I realize now when I actually can see my position, I'm lost. I'm out of position. And I began to cry. You see, I I didn't know. I had no idea that I was lost while my eyes and my vision were fixated on that toy. It wasn't until I was able to step back and stop and be told, you were out of position, that I actually knew that I was lost. Those are the people that Jesus came to save. Jesus comes to remind us just how lost we are just how, uh, how bad our astigmatism is, just how bad our vision is, just how bad our hearing is. And then he comes in to do the surgery, to do the work, to not only be the surgeon, but to be the educator, to make us know and see and hear. And so he goes to this man and asks him that question. 
Who is the Son of Man? Now, when you see this title, the Son of Man, it's used over 80 times in the Gospels, roughly about 12 times in the Gospel of John alone, and then four other times in the New Testament. And it's almost always used by Jesus to refer to himself. Has these overtones of of deity, stemming all the way back from Daniel 7, where the Son of Man receives an everlasting kingdom, where all people serve him, At Jesus' trial, the high priest commanded him in Matthew 26, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are Christ, the Son of God. And then how did Jesus reply? He replied by quoting and alluding to Daniel 7. He said, "You have." this is in Matthew 26, he's quoting Daniel 7. He said, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, in John's gospel, the term is always associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the very salvation that he came to bring. So spiritual blindness, when you think about spiritual blindness here, it's only healed when we believe in Jesus for who he is and not just for what he's done. You see, the man couldn't answer who Jesus was. He just could, you remember when the Pharisees went to this man, they came to him and they asked him, hey, what happened? All the man could do is tell you what Jesus was capable of. He couldn't tell you who he was. He could tell you what he was capable of. But in order for real spiritual blindness to be healed, we have to not just know what Jesus can do, but who he actually is. In other words, your faith is only as good as its object. Your faith is only as good as its object. If you believe in an inaccurate Jesus, you're still blind, but you think you can see. If, if, if your conception of who Jesus is is not actually true, then you're still walking in blindness. And that's the scariest kind of blindness. There's nothing worse than thinking that you know and not knowing. Because not only will you make decisions with confidence that lack complete spiritual competence, but you'll actually walk yourself into situations you may not be able to extricate yourself from. That confidence is dangerous when we're wrong. And so you see this idea of spiritual uh, blindness is so important because uh, the man knew what Jesus did, but didn't know who Jesus was. So he still had spiritual blindness. And until he knew who Jesus really was, he was going to remain that way. That's why in verse 37, basically, when you, when you see the way that uh, uh, Jesus answers, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Matter of fact, let me go back. I'm going to read it through. Some, I, I, I think this is such an important thing as we look at how it connects. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Then Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. There's something so telling here. Again, this man knew what Jesus did. He didn't know who he was. You cannot see your way out of blindness. You can't see your way out of blindness. Jesus has to bring sight to you and then give you that inner light so that you actually recognize what it is that you see. Jesus had to be the one. Remember, this man is like, okay, I hear you talking about the son of man. Who is he? I want to believe in him. If he really had his eyes spiritually awakened, he would have been like, well, it must be you because you just restored the blind. I mean, I know what the Psalms say. The Psalm says that, uh, that, that God brings uh, healing to the blind. He restores sight to the blind. I, I know what the scripture says. Only God can heal blindness. But even then, his spiritual eyes had not yet been opened. And here's the thing. 
Jesus had to be the one to tell him, I'm the one. He didn't leave it to the man to to conjure up the truth. He didn't leave it to the man to, to read the tea leaves. He didn't leave it to the man to connect the puzzle pieces. It's one of the things that's so dangerous about who we are. We love to make sense of things. We want things to connect. We want things to, to make sense. And so we start trying to look for things that go beyond what God has even said in order to make sense of him. Some of the best conspiracies are riddled with people who have connected dots and bridged gaps where God never did. And he doesn't leave the man in a position to do that. The man just is honest. He, sa- he says, do you know the son of man? Do you believe in the son of man? And he's like, I don't. Who is he? I want to believe in him. Who is he? You see this sense of desire and this sense of acknowledging, I don't know. I don't have to fake it. I don't know. And Jesus says, he says, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Jesus confirms himself. Jesus reveals himself. We don't have to go find him. He finds us and then he reveals himself to us. The other thing you see is the second point that happens. The, 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 one of the most incredible things that I think this turn of events shows is when Jesus says this to this man, this man responds and says, I believe, Lord. And then he, he, he turned and he worshiped him. There's something about when real spiritual eyes are open. This is why it's not enough just to be, even as we talk about issues of other sin things that are demonstrated in our world right now, being able to identify racism, white supremacy, being able to uh, identify misogyny, being able to identify ways in which people's very human dignity are ripped away from them for any number of reasons. We can identify those things and we could be absolutely right in identifying them. But if it doesn't lead us to a place where we are in deeper places of worship, including mourning, if we don't get to a place of real worship, we still may be blind. We may be able to identify what's wrong without looking at the one who's going to make it right. If you don't know who the one is that's going to make it right, you'll just sit in a place of, of, of despondence. You'll sit in a place of depression. You'll sit in a place of utter hopelessness. So it's not enough to even be able to, to, to accurately identify what's wrong if we don't know the one who makes it right. So Jesus comes and not only heals his blindness, but says, I am he. And this man is so overwhelmed because his spiritual eyes open. What does this say? When you really do have eyes that are spiritually opened, you respond with worship. And you don't just respond with singing on a Sunday. You don't just respond with the ways that we study scripture. All of that is true. But the way that your heart reacts, the way that your heart responds, you realize your greatest hope, your greatest joy is the one who opened your eyes. No matter how bleak the world around you is, here's the difference. See, when you trust in your own sight, the Bible says to lean not to your own understanding. When you trust in your own sight, your joy will be contingent upon how good the things are that you see around you. But when your sight is actually fixed on Jesus, the things around you can look horrific and scary and frustrating. And necessarily, like you you could feel really bad about that. But ultimately, your vision isn't dictated by that. Your vision, the real spiritual sight you have is, my eyes are locked in on the one that's making this right. And so I can still have hope. Sometimes it's hard. I struggle sometimes to have real hope in the midst of things that just look hopeless, in the midst of things that historically have seemed hopeless. But on some level, I've got to go, if my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I have no other choice but to respond with hope because that is a function of my worship. 
And so this man turns and worships. Look, we don't know what the life of this man was going to look like after this. He's clearly been a beggar. He doesn't have a whole lot to his name. He probably doesn't have some great inheritance. His life is likely not going to get that much better right now. Maybe he could start working. He's got to start saving up money for himself. Maybe he won't have to beg anymore. But we know there were people who were beggars that had all of their faculties. So he may still be living that life. We don't know that. And yet he can still worship. Not much has changed in his lot in life. And yet he can still worship. Why? Because no matter what he sees around him, his vision wins out, the vision that was given to him by the one who gave him his sight back. This is such a beautiful piece, what it means for us to be in a place where we can truly worship whether we're happy or not. We can worship because we have real joy. And then you see this uh, second piece when Jesus, then after he says this and after this man begins to worship, Jesus responds to his worship and he says, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. This is such an incredible statement and is such an incredible truth because what you see is the way to stay blind is to keep trusting what you think you see. That's the best way to stay blind. The best way to stay blind is just to keep trusting, reiterating, uh, reciting all the things that you know, all the things that you trust in, all the things that you've done, all the things that people have told you are good about you and your ability to see, instead of being able to step back and go, you know, it's, it, I'm aware just of my sin nature so much that there are so many things that I could truly be blind to. Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment. And this judgment, here's what this judgment should do. In order that those who don't see, in other words, the folks who can clearly make out, I know I don't see what I should see. I know that my vision is off. I know there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I know that I don't have what it takes to actually see, feel, hear, think the right things. I know that's the case. I, I can see that. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that there's something wrong. Those are the ones Jesus came to save. The ones who think they already see, they're the ones who stay blind. To stay in spiritual blindness is to reject the gift of sight that Jesus offers to you. That's why when you see how the Pharisees respond, they, you know, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, well, we aren't blind too, are we? Listen, nobody likes to be told that what they had confidence in won't work for them. Nobody wants to be told that your vision isn't actually as good as you think that it is. Nobody wants to be told that what you're seeing is, actually not, is not actually what it is that is true. So these men who have trusted in their, in their religion, trusted in their lineage, trusted in their traditions, Jesus has already been making this point before, and he's yet making it again. And he's saying, yeah, this stuff that the folks that think they can see, the, if you're putting confidence in what you think you can see, you are still blind. And they respond the way we respond. We don't like to be told that we don't know a thing. We don't like to be told, especially when we think we've been working hard on it. This is definitely the case, to go back to the point that we began with. If we were to pick out a certain sin that we definitely see bearing out in our culture right now, this is the case when we talk about white supremacy. This is the case when we talk about misogyny. This is the case when we talk about, whenever you talk about an issue and you say, hey, listen, this right here 
is actually still very racially insensitive or this or your view of a thing is actually something that's rooted in a form of white supremacy. You're so angry that you could ever potentially have a view that is racist. You're more upset by, by, being, by, by, by possibly being racist than you are, uh, or I'm sorry, you're more upset by being called possibly racist than you are by being racist. You're more upset and going, wait a minute, I'm not, you're not saying I'm that, are you? Because that's actually what they're doing. Jesus is talking about blindness and they're going, you're not saying that we're blind. It's so common for folks when we talk about issues of race for people to go, that can't possibly be true because I'm the most woke person you'll ever meet. You shouldn't say that about that person. That person is more woke than I've ever seen. They know more about this. They've been around people that have spoken about these things. They've read books. That can't possibly be true. They can't possibly have some sense of racial bias still. That's the language of a blind person. That's not the la- and that's the language of a blind person who thinks they see. So, so that's, a, that's the language of a person who, who has false confidence in their sight. We've said this before. If, if someone were to say, I don't care who it is, if somebody were to say to you, hey, it looks like that this here could be a real area of sin. Again, whether it's race, whether it's gender, there's some real bias that's showing up here that could actually cause real damage to other image bearers. Your first response shouldn't be, nope, not possible. Your first response should not be, let me run you my resume to prove to you that I'm good. No, your first response should be, well, I realize that at my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm, my blindness is still there. I have real blind spots. I have real humility. What do we say it is? I, it, I have the ability now to be able to say no matter what it is that you bring my way, I can say I would not put that past me. You say, you're saying that I'm overlooking something because of someone's gender. I wouldn't put that past me. I'm that blind. You're saying that I might possibly be racially insensitive or I might be racist in a thing, a, a way in which either A, I individually see a person or ways that I'm blind to systemically the ways in which people of color are harmed. It's possible because I'm blind. Instead of responding and going, wait, you're not talking about me, are you? Wait, you're not. I, I care so much about my own feelings on the thing. I'm willing to do the hard work as long as I don't have to feel bad. I'm willing to do the hard work as long as I might not end up being guilty in the midst of it. You see, the the person who's blind and they know they're blind are completely open to admitting their guilt. The person who is blind but doesn't know they're blind fights tooth and nail to avoid ever being guilty. That's where these Pharisees are. So they're staying in spiritual blindness. And you see verse 41 offers this incredible, gracious opportunity for salvation. And he says, if you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. That could be a really confusing passage if you don't know the context before. But we can see clearly what Jesus is saying here. When he says, if you were blind, in other words, if you were blind and you acknowledged your blindness, then you would not have sin. Now, how is that possible? Well, because that's what, that's what it takes for us to repent. You see, when we see that we're blind, and we, are, and we repent of our blindness and we see what Jesus does. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. So in order for me to be, to, to be forgiven of my sin, something has to, uh, that inner light has to happen where my vision is changed and I go, oh my goodness, I am so far removed from mom. I'm so far removed from God. I'm so far removed from the truth. I can now see that I'm lost. 
those are the ones that are forgiven. Those are the ones whose sins are washed away. Those are the ones who are washed white, spotless, without wrinkle. Why? Because they get the same innocence of the very Savior who died for them and in so doing gave them their sight. That's actually what he means. So when Jesus looks at them and he says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. In other words, if you would have seen your vision, if you, if you would have seen your blindness, then you would know where your real sal uh, salvation comes. You would know that, that Jesus has come to take away your sin and you would no longer have it. But instead, now that you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, you think that you're good without me. Your stubbornness, your rejection of me, that keeps you in your sin. This is the scary thing. When you're holding on to your vision, when someone comes to you and says, I could show you the heart of God is actually very opposed to, what, to the position that you're holding right now. I can show you that the heart of God mourns the thing that you rejoice I can show you that the heart of God is diametrically opposed to the way you see the world and you're rejecting him, which is guaranteeing that you are enslaved to your own blindness. Rejecting that light, that vision that God gives, here's the danger. It leads to further hardening of our hearts and it leads to further judgment. You see, one of the things that we see throughout, when he says your sin still remains, there are other places in Scripture where, where God calls out the children of Israel, that calls out his people for rejecting the truth, for overlooking and being, or willfully ignoring and rebelling against the truth. And the result of rejecting spiritual sight, this is the scary thing, is to become hardened in unbelief that eventually culminates in eternal judgment. That's the danger. You can get to a place where you keep trusting your sight so much that God just gives yourself over to it. He allows you to be so consumed by it and your heart becomes hardened. This is one of the scariest principles in the Bible. You reject the light that God graciously gives you. He will confirm your rejection and leave you in your blindness. You remember in Matthew 13, Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke to the people in parables. And he responded by citing the prophecy of Isaiah 6, 9. Here's what he said. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. You see, Jesus is actually quoting something that's always been true. Eventually, God will just give us over to the things that we actually really want, ourselves. If we continue to reject God and reject his vision on a thing, he will just give people over. I firmly believe that's why it's possible for people throughout the past and even the present to claim to love Jesus. We've all seen the picture of the folks who are in Klansman robes on this stage uh, holding up a cross with a sign above them that says, Jesus saves. How is it possible that folks can live that way, claim to have the light of Jesus and be so blind? Because at some point, God gives us over to ourselves. At some point, our hearts become hardened. At some point, we have to firmly answer this question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Which means, do you believe 
Do you hold to the very heart that he has? Do you feel the same things that he feels about us, about each other? To not believe, to reject that has huge consequences. So if you shrug your shoulders and say, well, I don't know, or I don't care, or I'll think about it later, you're closing your eyes to the light that God is offering you. But not only that God is offering you, you're also closing your eyes to the folks in your very community that can be harmed by your ignorance, that can be harmed by that rejection. The other thing is that what we see when we look at the ways that people's hearts are hardened, God is not obligated to give us any more light. He's given us what we need. So if we keep rejecting his gracious offer of real light, of real salvation, but also of, of the real heart that he has so that we can start to have eyes to see the real brokenness around us. You can keep on hearing without understanding. You can keep on seeing without perceiving. Your heart may grow dull. You may die in your sins only to face eternal judgment. This is the most this is a very difficult truth, but it's a necessary truth. And we're going to have to face this over and over again. When we see brokenness in our community, when we see tragedies happen, we have to stop and say, who is the son of man? When you hear horrific things happen, here's the thing. In answering that question, you might get a response back that says, okay, now here's who you are. See, in knowing who Jesus is, we should start to get a better feel for who we are, our brokenness, our biases. And sometimes, it, most times, it doesn't happen in a still small voice. Most times it doesn't happen in just you and self-reflection. It happens in community. It happens when we are sitting, listening to the pain of our brothers and sisters who may be unlike us. It happens by uh, engaging with people who might uh, have experiences that are very different from ours and go, Lord, I want your heart for them, which means I have to, expo- I have to be exposed There are things that maybe I'm overlooking. There are things that maybe I'm willfully doing. Lord, let me be someone who sees my own spiritual blindness so that I can receive your sight so that in turn I see you well and that I see my neighbors well so that my heart not be hardened and I not live enslaved to my sin. That's the the power of the gospel. To truly break the chains of our heart, to free us from ourselves, so that we are no longer enslaved to our sin. We are now free to see. And there is no seeing without us seeing our blindness. But thank the Lord that he comes to find us. He doesn't leave us to look for it on our own. He doesn't leave us to look at the sight chart. He doesn't leave us to do surgery on ourselves. He promises the only thing that happens is that he just tweaks our heart to make us see just how blind we are. And then he comes in and handles it. That's the joy of the Lord that we rest in. That's what we hope in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways in which you don't leave us to figure this out. You don't leave us to learn how to see. You don't leave us to learn how to hear. You don't leave us to learn how to feel. You break our heart and then you remake it to function like yours. Father, I pray that even as we are figuring out how to engage these this yet uh, another difficult time, of real injustice and mourning yet another death and figuring out what our response should be as the church. God, I pray that we would mourn with your heart, not not our own. We would mourn with your heart and then we would hope for the things you promise us, that we would have this deep hope. Father, we know that not all these things are gonna make us happy, but you promise us to have real joy. So God, I pray that our joy will be rooted in the fact that you are coming to make these things right, and you're even doing them right now. 
You tell us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, we pray for your kingdom to come here right now. We're praying that we not just rest in, that we not just shrink back and rest in the idea that it'll all be fixed later. We know it's going to be fixed later and we look forward to it and we are thankful for it, but we're also thankful that you don't leave us without small evidences of the kingdom that's coming. And so God, every time we mourn, I pray that we don't get tired of it. Every time that we rejoice in small little victories that show little pieces of your kingdom, I pray that we not grow tired of it. God, I pray that the deep truth of our spiritual blindness, our deep need for you to come and change our hearts, I pray that you would make that known to us and I pray it would manifest itself to not just be private, to not just be personal, to not just be intensely spiritual, but for it to play out in very real ways in our community. Let us be the kingdom the picture of the kingdom that is coming to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And wherever you find yourselves, all of God's people say, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.